0: And welcome back, everyone. Uh, today, I've got uh, Tom Burbidge, who is the author of the F thirty five, the in- st- inside story of the Lightning Two. Tom, how are you doing today? Doing great, Mike, and thanks for having me. Uh, it's it's good to have you on, shipmate. Um, first off, uh, we'll we'll start at the uh, the beginning of your adult career, uh, which actually I start with the Naval Academy because that's like uh, having a full time job. Uh, what what drove you towards the uh, the Navy?
1: Well, my dad was a naval aviator. Uh, most of my role models growing up were naval aviators, and I sort of wanted to fly Navy airplanes. Wait, was your old man a uh, career he was. aviator? He was, yeah. He was one of the guys at Pearl Harbor. He graduated early from the academy a few months early and was the officer of the deck on the USS Detroit. So he had quite a career. You're kidding
0: me. Did uh, So did he get airborne for, for Pearl Harbor, or was he unable to get off the ground?
1: He was uh, on a ship, uh, his first assignment, and then he went back and got his wings, became an aviator, and was on the Franklin when it was kamik- kamikazied and sunk. <laughs> Spent what? about 18 hours in the water.
0: Oh, that which is my biggest fear, and I, I don't think people that don't have a good understanding of the ocean, especially the Pacific, 18 hours in the water is not, uh, no. not a fun time. What, what, what did he fly?
1: He flew the old World War II carrier airplanes, the Grumman Bearcats and the Hellcats yeah. and that, that group. Big engines in front. Lean your head out the side so you can see the ship. <laughs> that always struck me as they as they were coming in, because I know that
0: big nose is right in front of your face. Uh, that takes a lot of skill, skill I never had, hence why I, I think I went special operations. <laughs> um, and, and then so following the Naval Academy uh, directly to, to flight school, I'm assuming.
1: Uh, I had a temporary assignment as a football coach up at uh, the Naval Academy Prep School because there was a backup in the in the queue for the for flight training. So I was there until the end of the year, um, and then I went to Pensacola and was in flight training for about a year and a half, got my wings, and went to an E-2 squadron first. E-2. And then eventually,
0: uh, if I read this correctly, you became a test pilot. Is that correct?
1: I did. I went to the Navy Test Pilot School, Patuxent River, was able to fly a bunch of different airplanes there and, and then wound up getting into the a7 community as a reservist it, it always seems like uh
0: the aviators with some pedigree all were test pilots at uh, <laughs> at some point it, it I don't know why anyone would have, uh, sort of raise their hand for for a role that says test uh pilot um we, we, that, that that had to be just the most experienced aviator you ever served with because i'm assuming it, it, everyone that
1: it, yeah it, it was a really good experience um, it's it's probably the best um, applied academic and operational school in the world because you study half a day in the morning and go fly what you learned in the afternoon so oh. it's, and, and you get to do lots of things that you wouldn't normally get to do
0: yeah what what was the ultimate decision for you to separate from the navy and um, and take a shot at the uh, the private sector
1: I went from uh, from the test pilot school to be the catapult and arresting gear officer on a nuclear carrier, the Eisenhower, and had two years almost the whole time at sea. At the time, I had two kids and, and uh, was not knowing them growing up, so I thought I'd try a different tack, but stay in the Navy as a reservist, but but uh, more time at home.
0: Oh, man. Was that a uh, byproduct in the Navy back in the day? Cause, or, or do most aviators get to stay in the cockpit for much longer than you did?
1: No, uh, most of them, you, you know, you rotate, going to shore duty and then mm-hmm. uh, flying. Every now and then you find a really lucky guy who got to spend his whole career in the cockpit, but they're few and far between.
0: Yeah, you know, the, uh, the Marine Corps at the Pentagon, something called the Talent uh, Management Task Force, TMX, contacted me. And they were looking at, you know, the question of why so many pilots get out of, hey, if we left him in the cockpit, would more stay? Uh, if they created a, a a different pathway where hey you 're not going to pick up rank you 're not going to command a a flight squadron, but you get to to stay in the role that we spent so much money to to train you to do and, and playing to people 's passions and strengths, which I was actually proud of the marine Corps for for recognizing that uh that may be a, a strong retention uh tool
1: yeah no i think it, I think it would be there are guys that want to do that, and there are also guys that want to go up through the you know command structure and and uh, get promoted quicker and things like that. So if you're if you're committed to flying and you love flying and you want to stay in the cockpit, you're probably going to have a more limited career path. Yeah, yeah. And, and
0: you know, let people do what they want to do. I mean, we had the same problem in the SEAL community. Guys that said, hey, I, I don't want to be a troop chief. I just want to stay in an assault team right. and, and do what I love. And I, I I still don't see the problem of keeping them there, uh, especially given the uh, the recruiting issues or, or obstacles we're facing right now. Uh, I know that's a much longer uh, debate. So, Tom, when you made that switch from the, uh, the, the uh, let's say, active duty Navy, did, was it straight to Lockheed or did you have a series of other jobs?
1: Uh, no, I actually went out to Lockheed uh, to, to uh, I was hoping to hire on as a test pilot. <laughs> and at the time, they were going through a period where they just weren't testing any new airplanes. So um, I got into their Navy programs uh, area and was working primarily Pentagon and, and the Hill and places like that. Um, in support of their anti submarine warfare airplanes. I, I had been a test pilot on the S3 Viking, so I had the background on the airplane. So mm. and that's where I started. And then I sort of got into the moving routine. I went from there to Washington to run their Washington office. And then I went to where I am right now, near Atlanta, to their Marietta office and got into the fighter world.
0: With the F-35, when when did that program really, let's say, start?
1: It's, its gestation was back in the mid-90s. That's when it really started, when yeah. all three services were developing their own new airplane. And the uh, budget, we were coming you know, down in the budgets, and the pressures were such that uh, the Department of Defense decided they couldn't afford to have three separate development programs going on at the same time. Maybe our technology is mature enough today to put everybody in the same basic airplane, optimized for the operating environment they're going to have to live in, but uh, basically... Um, a common family of uh, platforms for all three services. That was in the mid '90s, and there was a, it was mostly a technology development program first, trying to look at what technologies do we need to do that, not just from an uh, airplane capability, but from a manufacturing capability, to do all that. Um, and, and then it went into the competitive phase where the three major primes, uh, Lockheed, uh, Boeing, and McDonnell Douglas, were competing. The
0: the 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 tenure and the, just the massiveness of this program. Uh, you know, I read that it costs more than the Manhattan project <laughs> and the development of the B2 stealth bomber. I mean, it's, it's, it's no surprise that it's going to come under criticism from, from, from multiple agencies, uh, the services, uh, politicians, civilians, uh, taxpayers. Um, but you know, what I really hope to gain out of this podcast is to give people a little perspective of past programs. And I know you probably have the data, uh, on those. Um, one, whenever we create a new platform, there's always going to be some loss of life. And I, I tried to do as much research as possible on the the, the development of the UE, which um, you know seemed to have uh, a, a lot of issues. Uh, there were there were deaths during the the testing phases. Um, what don't you think people understand about these programs? Uh, I mean, naturally, we we would both agree one death is too much, but it just seems to be it's, hey, when you're testing something and advancing technology uh, from what we have to where the F-35 is, there there's going to be failures along the way.
1: Uh, that's uh, generally been true in the past, but um, on the F-35, if you go to Edwards Air Force Base, which is where a lot of the testing took mm-hmm. place, all the roads there are named for test files that have died testing airplanes. So in the past, that's been a big part of the project. On the F-35, we really haven't lost any humans. We have had a couple of of accidents. Uh, most of those were actually not in development; they were after development. They were mm-hmm. uh, a carrier accident. They were uh, one in the UK uh, with the British Stovall uh, uh, version, and most recently a production airplane that had a uh, some kind of an engine issue on the flight line. But other than that, the airplane has been extremely safe. One um, of the big big issues that people really don't understand or get a grasp for is cost because it's so easy to take it out of perspective. Um, F-35 is going to build somewhere around probably four to five thousand airplanes. It's going to operate until 2070 or 80. The B-2 have built 21, okay, 21 airplanes. So, So the total cost of that program is wrapped up in the development and the production of 21 airplanes. This one is development, production, test, and development of 5,000 airplanes. So when you compare those costs, obviously one's going to be quite a bit higher than the other, but it's also much, much longer. So there's a there's a misperception and it's often fanned by competitors that want to yes. keep their airplanes in production as a cheaper version or even the media that le- just likes to be very critical of almost any new program coming along.
0: When, I, and I, I'm forgetting the name of government contracting when a, a request comes down uh, for a bid, uh, I'm assuming... It really came down to you guys in, in, in Boeing. Is that correct?
1: It, it did. There were three in the beginning, uh, and that was because there had already been a program started for the Marines, which was a replacement for the Harrier. Mm-hmm. That program was already underway. There was already a prototype being built. When it was sort of terminated, it wasn't canceled, but it was absorbed by the JSF program, by the F-35 program. So there, there was already one team that was fairly far along. That was the team that actually didn't get selected for the follow-on. Follow that was McDonnell Douglas. McDonald Douglas was teamed with BAE Systems and Northrop Grumman mm-hmm. on that project, and then McDonald Douglas went with Boeing, BAE, Northrop Grumman went with Lockheed when when it was down selected to two.
0: That, so that bid process in, in submitting the, the 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 proposal, that's got to be not only taxing, but almost cutthroat between you and another organization like Boeing. I mean, the 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 how for how lucrative a program like that is. Uh, explain to the listeners what goes into submitting a proposal, a bid, and actually being awarded the uh, the contract.
1: This particular program had a period of time where we both both competing teams built prototypes. They were called the X airplanes, and then we had to fly those. Uh, it wasn't technically a fly off, but it really was a fly off. It was which one is going to perform better, which which one's going to prove better what the uh, proposals predicting. There's a whole other team in another place that's doing the proposal response, and then they fill it in with the data that's being gathered by the X airplanes now, That proposal, of course, this was the days when they were trying to go to acquisition reform and everything was going to be mm-hmm. short and tight. And uh, I think our proposal was 25,000 pages long. So every every piece of the program had to be explained in detail. Why are you better than the mm-hmm. other guy? And it becomes uh, at the bottom, at the end of the day, nobody actually reads the whole proposal. They break it up into pieces and hand it out to a bunch of different people. And you read that piece, and, and then you grade it compared to the competition. And then they add the numbers up, and that's who wins. You know. I I, I I've got to suppose, and I don't want to put you in uh, or ask you loaded
0: questions, that you're looking at the requirements that DoD has laid out that have to go into this aircraft. To what degree in the proposal? I mean, It's life. You, you almost, you almost promise, without having the capability at the time. But you know, four or five years from now, you'll be able to to, to develop that capability and integrate it into the to, into the airplane. Is is that such a thing, or well, is that? Uh,
1: yeah, the technologies that go into the plane are pretty amazing. You know, there's never been an airplane that can land vertically and is supersonic and is stealthy. The combination of those three design requirements are, have been viewed as nearly impossible in the past. So that was a big a big issue. How do we actually design an airplane that will do that? But then you have to fill in the blanks with as much real data as you have to try and defeat that point that you're making that you can actually project without a lot of technical basis to it. So a lot of it was, was done that way. A lot of lab work was done. A lot of uh, simulations were done. A lot of data was gathered to support each contractor's proposal. Um, and then, you, And then there's still technologies that aren't mature yet. So you are betting on the come in some cases. yeah. And, and there's a couple of times, you know, so then you're awarded the contract and then you have a couple of technologies that either failed or didn't perform as expected. And mid-course, you have to make a correction for that. And there was a couple of things that happened four or five years into the contract where we had to have a technical breakthrough to, to succeed. And luckily we have really smart engineers and really smart people working that and were able to do it. But um, I'll give you one one example just to show to Make an example, and that's how do you take this airplane to sea when you're on a very small ship and you're you're open to the air and open to the salt water. Yes, all stealth airplanes up to this time had had to be in humidity-controlled hangars to because of the materials and the coatings and the curing that was required. How do you do that? That's a whole new generation of stealth. So we had to sort of f- find our way through that, you know. And and uh, as the program was going on, as the costs were being done as the testing program was getting started, we're still maturing a couple of the key technologies. So, was it accurate? You were
0: with the program, you led the program from 2000 to 2013?
1: Yes, I joined the program um, one day, one week before they flew the first X-plane, which was before the proposals were submitted, Mm -hmm. and that was in uh, 2000, and then I retired in 2013. So, I was there for the first 13 years of the program was that your sole focus within the company, that it one was. program? It was. It was, like, it was like actually running a company on its own. It was actually bigger yeah. than most aerospace companies, that program, because there were you know, three prime contractors involved, some 3,000 suppliers were involved, mm. uh, industry from all around the nine partner nations that had been committed to the program.
0: That sounds like a 13-year deployment uh, overseas. <laughs> I, so in terms of like family, and I, I've got to assume the program consumed your life, just it almost by, pro- by proxy of the government reaching out for updates and updates and updates.
1: It did. Um, and by that time, my kids were all grown and I'm dealing with grandkids yeah. um, for, for most of the, most of the time. So, but yeah, it did. I had, a, I had lived in Fort Worth, uh, worked in the factory there every day. Most of my time, I was sitting on an airplane going to one of the countries or going to Washington or going somewhere to work the program. And uh, my family was wherever my family was and we rendezvous whenever we could. So so it's ironic that the issue that I I jumped from the Navy into civilian life for really kind of comes back to haunt you if you're totally committed to a project later on.
0: Mm. in one of this uh this magnitude, not only for for the US but our allies. Um in terms of let's say a leap from our current platforms or what were our current platforms, the F-18, the F-16s um what what what's a good analogy of how far we've 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 sort of leaped from like um cuz i i know again i read uh 9 million lines of code are required for the f35 compared to nasa's curiosity mars rover uh which only required 2.5 that right. that that seems insane
1: right and the, and the reason it seems insane is that uh, the airplane has a number of different sensors on it that basically are good day or night, weather or non-weather. And it allows the airplane to do things that today's airplanes really can't do in a high-threat environment. It allows you to penetrate relatively unseen um, into a close enough point to deploy your weapons. Today, most uh, fourth-generation airplanes, F-15s, F-16s, F-18s, just can't do that. Uh, They don't have the survivability to do it. So So that was a key feature um, that had to go into it. The software um, on this airplane allows you to take all the sensors and basically fuse them together. So you as the pilot are looking at, it's like a big screen TV in your hotel room. You're Mm -hmm. watching the movie. You're not watching the sensors. You're not watching individual dials. You're watching the movie. And that's really the big leap. It's the situational awareness. It's not having to do it all in your own head when you're looking at multiple indicators. And secondarily, it's the ability to share that information with other airplanes in your flight, with other, with ships, with whoever's out there. So it's really, it's really the migration into the information age in the battle space. That's one of the major differences between this airplane and the airplanes that came before it. Forget the stealth and the maneuverability and all that. Yeah. Um, it's the ability to, to do that.
0: So, so does that make the logistics and the maintenance of the F-35 that much more complicated than the, as you said, the fourth generation aircraft? Or is it pretty much uh, synonymous, same amount of maintenance, same amount of time?
1: There was uh, as much money in the early days of the program put into reducing the, the ownership issues, the cost of ownership, uh, the long-term logistics as there was in, in uh, you know inventing the plane. So there's a big focus on trying to reduce the lifecycle cost and the cost of owning the airplane. And one of the big benefits of the way we went to the next generation of uh, low observability or stealth was that that process has become much, much simpler. That has tended to be a driver in the maintenance costs of the earlier stealth airplanes. Um, In in the case of the F-35, we've been able to minimize that uh, almost to the point where it's negligible.
0: I I do remember reading an article. I I want to say it was 2018 or 2019. There were some complaints from the active duty uh, flight squadrons uh, that parts were limited uh, at that time. Is is that something that we've caught up to? Well, uh,
1: again, there's a lot of effort put into improving reliability and maintainability. (laughs) But spare parts um, are part of the budget process. And if you've got to finish some set of tasks, like you have to finish flight tests or you have to finish your software development, that's the part that sometimes gets robbed, Rob Peter to pay Paul. Um, and then you get uh, shortchanged on the, on the parts that are in inventory to repair things. Now, hopefully, the reliability of parts is so much better that you don't need all those parts that you've had in the past. But still, it, uh, it, the managing the logistics and supply chain, COVID was, a, was an impact. Yeah, yes. Um, lots of things that, it affected the spares support for the airplane.
0: Yeah, there's very few industries, professions, or or supply chains that weren't affected by COVID, so that's not surprising. Um, Naturally, a program like this is not going to – let me ask you this. For how long was this program sort of kept in the dark from the public, or was it pretty public uh, immediately just due to the size of the program?
1: It was public uh, immediately. for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is the potential size of it, of course, was going to potentially change the aerospace industry in general. Um, the second one was that it was it was initially conceived of as a multinational partnership. Mm-hmm. So it's all three U.S. services, and we had eight other partner countries from the very beginning. And the other partner countries were contributing money to the development. Well, that, in essence, brings you out of the closet very quickly. Yeah. So this was one of the programs that was uh, less visible more visible, less secret, um, to its, in its development phase than the other airplanes that came before it. What what, what
0: conversations happen in the the again the gestation period uh, of of this program, with regards to cybersecurity or espionage or, or basically spy on the program to to get as many of the trade secrets and technology uh, as possible.
1: There are a lot of protections put in uh, during the development phase of the program to prevent that. Um, uh, Access to different parts of the uh, database was was very rigorously controlled. Um, There was nobody, none of the partners on the program were anything other than the closest allies. Mm -hmm. So we had trusted relationships with all of them anyway. Most of the development was done uh, co-located, the sensitive pieces of it were co-located. in an environment that was uh, very protected from a cyber perspective. Um, But clearly, if you look at some of the new generation airplanes coming out of China and Russia, a lot of it is high-fidelity satellite photographs and then trying to mimic the design. Uh, But what's under the skin is almost more important than the shape of the airplane these days. So that's really the protected part.
0: This this may be something you, you, you can't answer. Were there... Did we pick up on cybersecurity attacks where China and countries like uh, North Korea or, or Russia or Iran were were attempting to infiltrate the uh, the program? Oh,
1: oh, oh yeah, almost every aerospace company today has has uh, daily assaults, you know, through the cyber world, and and there's a lot of effort that goes into to cybersecurity and protecting um, any kind of trade secrets that are there. But yeah, there, it was very common. It, it was probably the most uh, the most attractive target for all of those countries from a cyber perspective. So we had to do lots of things to try and keep that sacred.
0: Good Lord. Uh, In in terms of, I'm assuming everyone needed a top secret clearance on this. uh, Does the the government come in and actually have a physical position in in assisting with that security, both physical security and um, cyber security?
1: There's levels of classification on the program and there's quite a bit of it that's unclassified um, in in terms of the hardware and the the construction and the manufacturing processes and things like that. Um, The the very uh, classified stuff does require special clearances and special facilities Mm -hmm. and those kind of things. The government, um, the program office was called, a program executive office was um, in Washington, D.C. It wasn't in one of the test centers like it normally is because politics were a big part of this program. And they were very much involved with, Everything that was going on. So it, that brings up a great question. Paul, um, <laughs> po- hey, politics
0: is involved in everything. Uh, you've probably heard the phrase: "If you don't take an interest in politics, politics will assuredly take an interest in you." To to what did, degree were you involved in that fight or those discussions, as sort of the the CEO of this program, or were there others in Lockheed Martin that are like, "Hey, Tom, you focus on this. We we've got that fight."
1: We had a big. We have a big Washington office that that mm-hmm. works all of the Lockheed corporate interests, as does mm-hmm. Northrop and BA Systems, and we were all teamed up working this issue um, during the budget cycle when the four major committees are going through their debates, and a lot of it's done by staff, um, and they don't all get out to see what's going on on the program. They know what they read. Um, I would normally move to Washington and spend a couple of months back and forth to Washington to help. They want to talk to the people that run the program. They don't want to talk to the marketeers and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, so so there was a big demand. And and if you think about it, the eight partner countries have their own parliaments or congresses and their own departments of defense. And the same activity is required to keep the program solid in the budget in all of those countries also. So so it was it got to be a bit of a like I say I spent a lot of time on airplanes. <laughs> It sounds
0: like you, 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 you spent more time at points in the program, uh, let's just say rubbing elbows with politicians than uh, than assisting the team moving the, uh, the football forward. But I'm sure that's a way of uh, assisting the team and, and keeping them focused so that they don't have to fight that fight.
1: What we actually did, uh, Mike, is we, we at two, 2000 or 2004 was the first major development piece of the program. And about that time, the program had grown really big. Um, uh, I mean, we went, we went from about 180 people to 4,000 people in the first year in Fort Worth. So we were bringing on about 120 people a week. Uh, so it was, just a, it was just a huge mass of, of growth. And then about 2004, we decided, you know, we really can't, one guy can't do this. We can't run the day-to-day contract activities and meet all these requirements politically around the world. And so we brought a second guy on, a very experienced guy, and he and I were sort of co-leaders he would run the day-to-day. He would look at what's going on in the contract. He'd hold the meetings in, internally. And my focus would move to keeping the program basically sound in the U.S. and in the partner countries.
0: That is uh, That sounds like an interesting uh, relationship. The, the co-lead example has worked. Uh, it, it's worked well in cases and then um, poorly in others. But, Tom, I'd be interested with these programs, something like this. And and hopefully there's an, uh, a specific thing that comes to mind. Was there ever a moment during the program where you came home with your wife just defeated, and you're like, we th- this is possibly going to fail."
1: Did there you was, ever have that moment? Yeah, there was actually two two inflection points on the program where we were we were struggling a little bit. Uh, one, the first one was in about 2004. You know, there's not enough engineers in the world to design three airplanes simultaneously, so you basically do the simplest one first. Then the next one that's closest to that. And then the third one, which was a Navy airplane, which was significantly different for the catapults and the resting gear. So that was the order we were doing it in. And as your early design engineers finished the first one, they would roll to the second one. And detailed design guys would take over different engineering specialties. Well, we, at, the, at the early points, we were actually just weighing the drawings. We didn't have an airplane to weigh. And our predictions suddenly jumped up on what the vertical takeoff and landing airplane was going to weigh. Most of it driven by the desire to have rapid manufacturing, and what I mean by that is we had a double bulkhead we'd have a wing that would came in, we wanted to just snap it onto the fuselage, so we'd have a double bulkhead on both of those. Mm-hmm. Well, that added weight, and all of a sudden, our predictions of the weight of the of the Marine Corps airplane was saying that we're probably not going to meet the requirements that that airplane has to meet and so we ha- so we got a reset, we actually moved it. First in the queue, do the hardest one first, then do the one that's a little easier, but it looks like it, then do the do the Navy one third. And when we made that switch, it it added about 18 months of additional engineering. Uh, it did take about 3,000 pounds out of the airplane, uh, which is amazing if you think about it. That's mm. a lot of weight to come out of an airplane. It only weighs about 20,000 pounds or something. So, so it was a fairly significant reduction. It dramatically improved not only the Stovall airplane, but the other two airplanes also. But at that point, we thought, boy, we were really kind of on the fence. If somebody wants to pull the plug, uh, that could happen. And we were working as hard as we could work. A lot of people sacrificed, you know, seven-day work weeks and, you know, 15 hours a day trying to get through that. We got it redesigned. We got the airplane back on track. It's been working well ever since. That was a major inflection point in the program where we were all kind of down at the moment. The second one was when they did a, a restructuring in about 2010 on how you calculate cost. And it, it basically caused a breach, what they call a breach of their cost threshold. Um, and uh, there was a reset on the program. They told all of the guys working hard, you go sit down, stop coloring. We're going to replan your program for you. Program kind of got replanned, added a quite a bit more testing into it, and testing is cost because uh, all the flight test centers and all the engineers associated with it. so. So we had those two inflection points. Bottom line is the airplane does everything today that it was originally thought about that it could do. It's just that we hit those two bumps in the road.
0: Let, let me ask you this. Uh, so one, one of my passions is, is, is diving into leadership uh, in in tough situations, how leaders make an assessment, identify course of, uh, of action, and then galvanize the team to all move in the same direction to, to solve the problem. With, uh, with both those problems, and you went to one of the finest leadership uh, institutions in the land, the U.S. Naval Academy, then you were a, a naval aviator, an officer. When you got hit by those, those obstacles, what did you do as a leader, and how did you address the team and get them moving in the other uh, direction, despite such the, uh, the major defeat at the time?
1: We had been working real hard, uh, Mike, to, to form a JSF culture that was not a Lockheed Martin culture. It was not a Northrop Grumman culture. It was the JSF program. We're going to all have to work hard and we're going to have to work long. And we're going to hit bumps. Uh, when you come on the program, you take your Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, or BA Systems badge off. And you put your JSF t-shirt on and we're all on the same team. And we had people in key positions on the program that weren't part of the prime contractor's company. Um, We called it the best athlete concept. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whoever was best at that job was going to get it, even if it was a top job. Um, And we had uh, behavioral norms that we expected people to behave because the pressure cooker of a program like that can cause anger. It can cause pent up emotions. It can actually hurt morale at a time when you most need good morale and productivity. So we're constantly working on that, constantly trying to get feedback from the troops that were out there going through this. A lot of communication. Bring the customer in a lot. Let him talk to everybody and tell them how important it is for, for them, uh, which we did. General Mike Howe, who was the original program Executive Officer, you probably know him, who later became the top aviator for the Marine Corps, personal friend of mine, classmate of mine from the Naval Academy. I said, hey, come in and talk to these kids, you know, these people. And he came in and gave a very emotional big picture of a ship behind him that was being designed to, to fly the F-35, the U S, the new uh, small carrier. And he said, Hey, that ship depends on you guys. You know, he made made a very really good, very good emotional speech. In fact, everybody, everybody just worked harder. So, so we were constantly trying to be wary of the fact that we were getting into this pressure cooker environment in a big way. And how do we uh, do the best we can in terms of communicating and leading, not managing, but leading the program. Uh, so
0: you walked into another question behavioral norms
1: mm-hmm.
0: what were those behavioral norms because we we often say that you know if leadership is behavior culture is behavior at uh, at scale what were those behavioral norms that you as a leader set and expected your people to emulate uh, within the uh, within the uh, the greater team
1: we got we got the leadership team together and we constructed a set of how would the ideal organization function what would be the characteristics the DNA of that group and we We uh, published these. And if you walked into a conference room at Northrop Grumman and El Segundo or in Solmsbury, UK, at BAE or Lockheed Martin, or even our major suppliers, those were posted. Those were posters that were on the wall. And every major uh, Zoom call staff meeting that we had, uh, we would go over those as the first chart in the deck. How are you doing on the behavioral norms? How's the culture? Are we, in fact, doing what we said we were going to do in terms of making this a top team? Um, all those were, were part of the process. Um, and we had a common set of objectives that everybody marched to. We didn't have mm-hmm. one company doing their thing and another company doing a different thing. One of the neat things we did, I thought, was we, we took three very senior engineers and we told them, we're going to take all the people that work for you away. You're not going to have anybody working for you. And we're going to title you the wizards. And I want you to be roaming mentors and just spend your day walking around and looking over shoulders and making sure that kid, the younger kids are doing what they need to do. Uh, we called them the wizards, and, and we put their little office area called it Hogwarts. <laughs> so the wizards lived in Hogwarts, and so, but it was a, it was a bit of a a fun moniker, but it it had a real serious intent to it, you know. They would be the ones that would pick the outstanding performer for the month and those kind of things. So, so we tried to have, we we found an interesting thing, which was reverse mentoring, where those guys were crusty Mm -hmm. old engineers that really knew how to design airplanes, but they didn't know a whole lot about the new computer programs. Young kids all coming in were wizards on the computer. They were teaching the old guys how to, how to, how to do that best, you know? So, so that dynamic was going on. um, And we spent a lot of time uh, in the workforce, walking the floor, talking to the mechanics, talking to the engineers um, just um, did everything we could to try and uh, act as leaders on the program i keep using the words leaders and managers because they are different yes Man- managers look at data make corrective action and can see the data improve leaders inspire ordinary people to do extraordinary things that's my definition
0: <laughs> that's you know no, no. and, and, and i'm glad you spelled that out you know and, and i know as a leader if you lay out behavioral norms the number one rule for you is people will be what people can see. Uh, yeah. And either these are rules for the, uh, hopefully they're rules for me uh, as well. Where, where did you learn to set a culture like that the, the methodology uh, applied?
1: I, I had been on a number of big programs and sometimes I've, I've always felt like uh, you need to take risk in your career. You know, if you don't want to take risk in your career, then be happy with what you're doing and, you know, and be a good participant. Um, a couple of, jobs that I jumped into when they were fortuitously offered to me. I wasn't expecting them like running the Washington office for a couple of years, <laughs> like taking over the F 22 program. Um, those were, I thought leaps of faith that somebody had in me. Uh, but I didn't know I felt relatively unqualified. So you have this nervousness about, do I really want to do this? It's just career limiting or career enhancing, you know? Um, uh, and so uh, you sort of have to, you jump into the breach and you go, hey, I, these people have got to perform um, and they don't perform well to certain styles of leadership. They perform very well to other styles of leadership. So how do I, and I've observed people through my whole career on who were, who were respected and um, and inspirational leaders and who weren't. And I tried to mimic that in my daily life and the people that work for me.
0: I, I've got to assume Lockheed Martin has a massive, military presence or, or influence, uh, given, given that, uh, I, I don't know what the percentages of employees in Lockheed Martin that had military experience, but I've got to assume that, that, that weighs heavily within the culture.
1: It is, it is quite high. Uh, many times they were in the military for only four or five years or six years. Our CEO, Bob Stevens was a enlisted Marine. And then he, uh, he basically ran the largest defense corporation in the, in the world. Uh, but yeah, everybody. Uh, there's a lot of people that have that early experience, and, and there's nothing that can replace that. I don't think you don't come out of a, out of college and uh, as a trained engineer and jump on a program and have those skills. They, they they come through. I think through the early military experience, whether you're a pilot or a marine leader or whatever you are. I think uh, there's a training piece of leadership that that's still not well defined. I don't think that ought to be part of the training process. Uh, mm-hmm you know, with these kind of things that we're talking
0: about, uh, again, a, uh, probably a, a, topic for, for discussion later, but I I've never seen an organization in the private sector replicate what the military military can do no. to set such a culture that, that just develops young leaders. I it's, I call it generational leadership. Um, and, and you look at guys like general Stanley McChrystal that, I mean, absolutely are wizards with regards to creating team and, uh, future leaders that go on to train another generation of uh, of leaders. I, I'm still in awe and thankful that that I had the opportunity to serve for as long as I did. Um, You know, it, it, Tom, the, the question comes from probably a lot of uh, viewers and listeners. So is the F-35 really that far ahead of the assets, the aerial assets our adversaries are using? And I know the F-35 is... Uh, it's been used in combat scenarios, but not against what we would consider near p- paramilitary uh, competitors that have electronic warfare, that have ground air assets. Um, and so the F-35 hasn't had the opportunity to, to totally prove themselves, but is the F-35 leap years ahead of where our adversaries are? Was the program worth it?
1: Uh, well, um I think it was um, and i may be biased, but um for the first time in history, if I put the three airplanes in front of you, Mike, and you and you looked at them, you would see that they're different. but if you sat in them they 're exactly the same and they're and the eight uh partner nations, which is now nineteen um, mm-hmm. if if we have to fly and fight together as an allied force, we now can come together as if we were a single squadron that's never been done even particularly between the services. So the airplanes uh, have, a, have a leveraging aspect to it in terms of allied combat or peacekeeping operations. I can, I can send, we can send F-35s from Denmark um, in a composite squadron with Norway and the Netherlands and they can replace a U.S. squadron. Really good example is the Queen Elizabeth, the new British mm-hmm. ship. Um, it deployed with two squadrons of U.S. Marine Corps F-35s on it. One squadron of Royal Air Force F-35s on it because they hadn't didn't have enough airplanes yet. They, they have them now. And when it, it went to Syria, when it came back through the med, the Italian F-35s flew out on the deck. And mm-hmm. three nations were flying an airplane on the same ship on the same day. I mean, that's, that's just not historically ever been done before. you know. So, so there's a leveraging effect of the airplane from a technical standpoint. Um, there is a mission-driven requirement, and that's mm-hmm. to be able to penetrate a heavily a heavily um, protected area uh, to the point where you can employ weapons and take out strategic targets. Other airplanes, like the F-22, can, can do the same thing, high and fast, much more maneuverable, but uh, it was designed in the dogfight era, mm-hmm. and we needed an air superiority fighter. We still have a good number of those in the U.S., and our allies uh, have sort of gravitated to the air superiority mission. In reality, that's sort of been overcome now by the the spread, I mean, we fly F-35s you know, miles apart, not visual, um, and you don't know where they're coming from and you don't know what they're controlling. And um, even if you happen to detect one of them, you can't get a kill solution. I mean, just, there's just so many features to it and so many um, great new sensors you know, that allow you to do things you couldn't do in the past, but now you can do it on all three services flying together. Air Force airplane coming off a regular runway, a Marine Corps airplane flying in from an expeditionary field, Navy airplane coming off of a carrier, can join up as a flight of three and operate as if they were from the same squadron.
0: That's, again, for our our listeners that don't have experience, that's massive in the fact that you can share situational awareness of what's going on in the battlefield through the uh, the sensors. Um, that That excites me. Wait, to to some degree did we see our peer military competitors start to scramble to develop these uh some of these uh capabilities not that they have <laughs> as strong as
1: alliances as we do i tell you the main difference uh mike is that they they may they may have airplanes that are comparable in terms of thrust and weight mm-hmm. and performance mm-hmm. but their the production the us has an absolutely unique ability to produce airplanes like that and the the adversaries that are developing their top end airplanes, if you really do some research and look at how many do they actually have flying, it's normally in the single or double digits, whereas we're producing 150 F-35s a year. Um, that's an unheard of production rate, uh, but the ability to move into high rate production has to be designed into the airplane. Um, we use a lot of three-dimensional uh, databases and things like that. Now, we don't use hard tooling like we used to. It's You design the airplane to the engineering today, not to the tool. Mm. Um, So, or you build it. to. So, so I think um, being able to produce large numbers is a real advantage for the U.S. manufacturing uh, community. Um, Even though the airplanes may be uh, from an air show perspective, may be equivalent. If you look at them flying in the sky, they're, they're probably not the same. In terms mm-hmm. of their ability mm-hmm. to move information and data, and they're definitely not the same in their ability to produce them in large numbers. It,
0: it, the uh, the manufacturing, the production is that all uh, Conus domestic based, or are the allies? Do the allies assist with that in manufacturing the, certain yeah,
1: things? The the allies. Um, it, one of the um, conditions for joining the program back in the in the late nineties, uh, if you if you as an ally nation, let's say Australia want to be part of the F-35, we'll expect you to contribute some amount of, mm. of funds to the, to the development of the airplane. In return, your industry can compete for work on the program in the areas that you're allowed to. And if you're the best value, you'll get the job. So one of our jobs as the industry guys, one of my jobs was try to try to find the companies in those countries that actually can participate because it's the next generation manufacturing, not just the next generation airplane. Yes in terms of precision machining and things like that, and composites and, and mostly structure kind of stuff. So, so every country that's in the partnership has some production capability on the airplane. Uh, a great example is Turkey, even though they're not mm-hmm. in the program anymore, they have a very good aerospace industry. They had parts on the very first airplane um, and up until the time where they were no longer allowed to, to stay in the program. Um, so, so yeah, they, they, every country participates. Um, uh, to say, to some level on the program,
0: so I, I'm going to ask you one fun question. Uh, maybe it's a personal question, to me, before we we, we sort of close this out. The the, uh, the A10 the Warthog, the, the Air one, Force one. is tr- the, 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 one. The thing is, just it looks cool. Uh, it's pretty great overhead when you're on the uh, the ground. Uh, Air Force has tried to get rid of that thing for for <laughs> multiple times. Why can't they get rid
1: of the A10? Or is the A10 here to stay for a little longer, I don't know what its project, projected uh, end date is now, but it goes up every year, but it's got a very strong uh, political following you know I mean basically it's built in the new york in the New York area up there primarily and it's got very sense. strong congressional support it's got jobs it's a great airplane i mean it, it was designed to take hits and it does that well
0: <laughs> it does it's,
1: it's a tank it's a tank killer you know and now you've now we're kind of out of the desert and moving into this next environment, um, you know, in Ukraine. And tank killing is a, is something that is going on quite a bit. In fact, one uh, interesting point before we close. Um, it was interesting that uh, the alliances that are post-World War II, NATO and other alliances, you can see a general shifting of that now into two geographical areas. One is the Arctic where you have the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and all of a sudden, uh, all the countries that surround the Arctic now, with the exception of Russia, are now on the F-35 program. They all jumped into the program. Uh, A number of them were already there. Denmark, Norway, uh, Netherlands. Finland's now joined. Switzerland's now joined. Canada, one of the original partners, has finally decided to buy the airplane. So all the countries surrounding the Arctic, that region, are now sort of de facto forming a new alliance, the Arctic Alliance. I'm, I'm just naming it that. It's not official. And then if you look at the expansionist uh, tendencies of China, you know, we have Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Australia, in the Pacific that are, along with U.S. supercarriers that deploy to the area, that form quite an F-35 alliance there. And that's the second emerging hotspot, you know, in the in the world. So, So it's actually helping shape alliances, which is really interesting for an airplane to be able to do that
0: we We are in interesting times, and uh all I can say is uh you know you have faith in your elected leaders that cooler heads will prevail and, and you've got to believe that even on let's say the chinese side, if we want to use them as the example, is there's reasonable logical people that want to avoid war uh as well but i know uh, it's it's safe to say that uh tensions are heightened uh right now um but never Never underestimate the, uh, the will of good people on both sides to, to, to ease those tensions. Um, you know, Tom, what, what do you want people to gain from this book? And I've, I've not yet uh, gotten a copy. Uh, it, I mean, are you just telling the amazing story of the team behind
1: this? Pretty I pretty much yeah, gave we'll, their make lives. Sure you, we'll make sure you get a copy, Good, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Signed, signed. Yep. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The story, the story was meant. It started out as a case study for program managers that are trying to run complex projects. It was started by other people, not me, and I was, and they were doing it through a series of interviews. And they came to Atlanta and interviewed me. I'd already been retired, and I thought, well, you know. There's a lot more to the story than that. And there are already a couple books written that that go into the academic cycle. What's really interesting about this program to me is the human story. It's how do you build the culture? How does the government build the alliances? How do we get all these people to play together in the same schoolhouse? And and what's happened? What are some of the backstories? To me, that's what's interesting. So we had a ghostwriter, a guy named Dave Poyer, who's written about 50 books, mostly Mm -hmm. in the military genre. And, uh, and his wife is a very author in her own right, but she's not technical at all. So every chapter had to go through Lenore and she would read it and say, I don't understand what you guys are saying. Or, you know, so, so it is actually a non there's technical parts of it, but it's a non-technical book. It's for people to understand the human journey.
0: I, so I'm excited. I think the best part of every story is the, is the human side of the story, uh, getting into the human condition and the team dynamics and, um, and hitting those periods where you don't know if you're going to quite make it or not and uh Tom I I can't thank you enough for one your service um never made it to the naval academy uh, i enlisted but uh, a lot of the best leaders i ever served were, were with were from the uh, the academy but you got to admit it's pretty cool to be part of a program that we know will last until 20 i think you said 2070 2080
1: yeah
0: uh, that 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 it's going to be around that long in your name uh, is going to live much longer than that. That's, that's what I refer to as a legacy, my, uh, my friend. Um, thank you so much. Uh, best place to pick up the book. I'm assuming Amazon, uh, anything else you want the uh, the listeners to know or, or where they can pick up the book or maybe, uh, find some more information.
1: It's on it's on amazon.com. It's also, uh, we have, the authors have to buy a certain number of books, which starts the whole process as a payment scheme. That's a business model. Um, but we have a, another website, that just called f 35 insidestorycom where people can also buy the book from us, or you can order it through Amazon or Barnes and Noble. But it's a better for that initial batch that we bought. It's a better deal. So, okay. So if anybody's interested in that, and if, if I can get your mailing address, I'll send you a book tonight and I'll autograph it for you.
0: We we will we will make that happen. Uh, again, thanks for joining us. Thanks for your service to uh, to country in uniform and beyond, and uh, for the listeners, we will see you again. Thanks,
1: Mike. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you.